2022, Team Milk came together by sponsoring female marathon runners for the marathon in New York City. Today, they're more than 20,000 strong. In 2024, Team Milk is making an even bigger commitment to female runners and launching the only women's marathon in the U.S., designed for and by women. The inaugural Every Woman's Marathon will take place in Savannah, Georgia on November 16, 2024. You can learn more and register for the marathon at everywomansmarathon.com. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. Questions including, what are we missing when we work remotely? Or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking? From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to The Future of Work, a Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the Pod wherever you get your podcasts. And welcome to the Long Form Podcast. Uh, I'm your co-host, Aaron Lammer, here with only one compadre this week. It's just us. Evan Ratliff. Hey. First time ever, just the two of us. I know. I'm, I'm, Let's go I, crazy. I'm worried. I'm worried. I'm worried about what's going to happen. <laughs> but it's just the two Te- of us for- Technical errors would not be the worst thing that could happen. <laughs> um, A very good reason why it's just the two of us. Yes. We are- um, we haven't actually gotten this cleared, but I think we're just going to go for it anyway. Um, Max is not here um, because he is celebrating the birth of his first child, uh, Guy Linsky. Welcome, Guy Linsky. Welcome, to the Guy, world. Guy Linsky. Uh, we're going to have a podcast with him next week. <laughs> um, but uh, congratulations to Max and his wife, and uh, we are uh, we are very happy to have a uh, small uh, human being uh, in our orbit. Here. Joyful times. And in addition to that, who did you talk to? Uh, I talked to Sean Wilsey. Um, he first came onto my radar because he wrote a book called Oh, the Glory of It All, which is about his quite unusual uh, childhood and teenage years. Um, and he has moved on. He's, he's pretty heavily involved in McSweeney stuff. He has a book coming out now called More Curious, which is a collection of like last decade or so of nonfiction. He's written about living in Marfa, about soccer. He's written about NASA. He, he, will, go, he will go anywhere um, for a weird story. Yeah, he's got um, range. Yeah. So uh, that that went really well. I really enjoyed talking to him. He's actually moving to Brooklyn, I think, um, or did move to Brooklyn. So if you see him on the street, mention this podcast for ten percent off. Um, <laughs> now, if you wanted to mention something to someone, Aaron, yeah. how would you do that? Um, I would start a tiny letter uh, newsletter. Um, they are our sponsor this week. It's a really simple way to start communicating with people personally, professionally, whatever. Make a tiny letter. Get people who need to sign up signed up. You're good to go. And now here's Aaron with Sean Wilsey. Welcome, Sean Wilsey. Hello. Hey, thanks. I talked to your publicist, and I don't know if you're coming or going right now, but you're definitely you're definitely on the move. Are you in New York? Or are you not in New York? I'm in New York now. Presently. Uh, presently, I am here. And then I, I, I guess... In my bio, I live in Marfa, Texas, and then I keep getting teased by people who are like, don't you live in Marfa when yes. I'm not? I, and I actually, the, I felt like the only criteria that I could really have to decide that was when I wrote the bio, I was living in Marfa. I think I'm moving back here 
next year. And anyway, I'm on a book tour now, so I'm not really sure where I'm You don't I'm know what based. the fuck's going on. I don't know. No, I have no idea. So I actually, I know like a little bit of your history because I, I, uh, I read your book. Actually, I worked in publishing when I was about, when, when did, when did uh, Oh, the Glory of All come out? What year was that? 2005. 2005. Okay, so I was uh, a 23-year-old novice in the publishing. They had a nice yeah. bin of uh, free books oh, right. that people had gotten as galleys. And I liked the cover. Had a great cover. I Thanks. picked it out, and I really enjoyed the book. Thank you. So I know a little bit about um, your life up until the point when you're about 22, I would say. Yeah, and I don't that, remember where's that book's twerk trail off. It 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 kind of jumps into my 30s a little bit just to conclude things, but it's mostly yeah. There's barely even any. Tw- I'm working on a memoir now that is really about my 20s. Yeah. Well, I was interested. So for people who haven't read the book, um, it details a lot of your experiences at, um, I don't want to, uh, reform schools are the wrong word, Altern- uh, uh, alternative schools that are not optional. Two of them were reform schools, and one of them was a school run by a nun who had left her order because she deeply felt that boys needed to be worked with in a way that she couldn't as a nun, and so she had this this all boys academy in the woods of Connecticut, and and then and then there were a couple of somewhat uh, conventional schools, one in in San Francisco, another one a prep school in Massachusetts that I just flamed out of. Where did that spit you out uh, uh, out of when you were done with those? I wound up being an apprentice gondolier. That's what you get for going to five. To, I never graduated from high school, and I uh, the last reform school that I went to was in. Italy, and I was sent to this school through the state of California. I had stolen a, I'd stolen a, as a Texan, yeah. I'll be a Texan here for a second. I just got my motorcycle <laughs> license, and it was really satisfying to finally get my motorcycle license after spending a lot of time on two wheeled modes of transportation. And I stole a scooter when I was a teenager, just flat out. St- one on the street in San Francisco. And it was like, as somebody who cares about aesthetics, it was kind of a lame scooter to steal, but it wasn't a Vespa. So maybe that was like why I stole it, because I would have felt bad stealing a Vespa from somebody, but it was kind of a crapped out Yamaha Riva. And I just drove that thing into the ground and got had it for quite a while. And then I was caught trying to spin donuts on a public park in San Francisco. And I was taken to juvenile hall. And I already had like something of a, I think there's a moment when you're failing miserably as a teenager, or I guess at any point in your life, where you start running a thwart of the law, and you start to understand that this is something that could be the rest of your life, yeah. and you're just going to keep like cops start noticing you. There's stuff you just aren't part of the invisible part of society, and I had already been like picked up for various other infractions throughout that year, and this time I got fully locked up. I was getting processed. Through the system, I had a probation officer, and I wasn't—I had no relationship with my parents at this point at all. And I'd been kind of living with friends and just sort of sponging around, and had some some weird, brief jobs. And the my parents sort of arrived on the scene and said they'd found this alternative school started by 
Peggy Guggenheim's cousin uh, are funded by her to help Irish street kids and <laughs> like the occasional miscreant from the U.S. and the Irish street kids got to go there for free, and the U.S. miscreants were all sort of allowed to come on some kind of sliding pay scale. Anyway, my parents worked out this deal with the state, and the state was like, "All right, if you if you agree to go to this program, we will release you," because it's not like they want you in their system, right? And so I went and ended up living in Italy for. For four years, I went through this really intensive confrontational program with a lot of Irish kids and a lot of a lot of other random people, and I never got a diploma. So my education was really kind of a wash. I remember taking the SAT while I was in that school, and I was already like 19 at this point. And I scored. I guess they've changed the scoring system, so this may be slightly meaningless. But I got an 11:30, which is like not a very good score. And this guy took me aside. He's like, "You have gotten the best score on the SAT that anyone in these programs has ever gotten." Well, that and, was something I thought about while I was wondering. I mean, did you realize that? Did you think, "Wow, I'm kind of different than people who are in these reform schools," or did you see yourself as a peer? Oh no, I didn't think I was different at all. No, no way. I felt very much like, uh, I mean, I always felt kind of like a stateless person. And, uh, you know, just because that was the that was the family history that I came out of. And I just never felt like I quite belonged. But I did feel very at home there. I mean, I actually, if the school hadn't imploded as so many of this kind of program does, I really could have seen myself becoming a counselor, like working with kids. I actually really loved it. And I felt very at home there. So I had this this score that was really shitty and wasn't actually going to get me into any college. And every college that I ultimately applied to rejected me except for the new school. And I ended up going to the new school. But prior to that, I wound up working as an apprentice to a gondolier in Venice. And the gondoliers are all... I was a skateboarder as well. And I felt like rowing a a Venetian boat, which is this long, skinny thing that you stand up on, was a lot like skateboarding. And they're kind of these societal misfits that yet embody the spirit of a city. And I always have felt like skateboarders in San Francisco are really like a very, very perfect match with each other. Do, are people feel shorted when they get an American gondolier in Venice? I never said that I was an American. Oh, yeah. No way. You just stayed, <laughs> stayed really quiet. Yeah, no. I mean, I spoke Italian and I just never, I just faked it. Get on the boat and row. Yeah, you just row. There's, um, that's what it's all about. And when, and then you went to the new school after that. I did go to the new school after that. At what point did you start processing these life experiences and going, wow, I should maybe write about this? Well, I started working in magazines as soon as I got to New York. I got a job at Newsweek, and I worked there as a letters correspondent, which was a job that I loved where you would have to just answer the mail. I mean, you'd have to read the mail, and you'd have to evaluate anything that needed a response. And this was like such representative of such a different time in magazines because it was a whole department, and there were lots of us in there. Yeah. And then there was the letters editor, and we put together the letters column. Yeah. But like every piece of correspondence was taken really seriously. Well, so what's like a typical letter that doesn't get printed but gets a response? The one that comes to mind is that Steven Seagal's lawyer wrote in upset about how Steven Seagal had been characterized. And I guess it, it, it had been like a linguistic quibble where our reporter had described Seagal as being in a state of high dudgeon. And <laughs> Seagal's lawyer was like, refused to acknowledge that this is a legitimate use of the term high dudgeon and that it was possibly slightly pejorative towards Seagal. And it was 
bullshit. And Newsweek wasn't worried about it. But they also felt like this is a public figure. The, he's bothered to get his lawyer to write in. So we had to craft a response, like a mollifying response. And I was in charge of doing that. So you would put together a draft. You would yeah. you would look at the original piece. You would look at what their quibble was with it. And then you'd think of what to say. And then the letters editor, this guy, Bill Christofferson, who was a really good bluegrass banjoist as well, would take your letter and look at it and mark it up. And then you'd take it through drafts. And it was like, I, it, I learned a lot about writing because yeah. it was just having your stuff worked on. That may be, of all the people who've been on this show who've described previous jobs, the most defunct job in the so, magazine so, industry. That like that one went before a bunch of the other jobs. Well, it was a paper job, too. Yeah, I mean, yeah. it all just came piling in in these bags. Yeah. And you'd have to go through it. and then, But it was still then a real deal job. Yeah. And then there was fact-checking involved in checking the column, and it wasn't like... I can't quite remember how fact-checking worked at the magazine as a whole, but you would have to fact-check the letters column yourself. And then I got hired as a checker at Ladies Home Journal. And I worked as a checker there for, which I guess just went out of business, you know, like earlier this year. And that was the first article I worked on there was about vulvodynia, which is like a burning vulval syndrome. And I had to call a lot of women who had it. And I was whatever... Twenty-one. <laughs> Just ask a lot of personal questions. Yeah. I remember specifically having to find out whether it indeed burned and itched, and the respondent was said yes, it did. And yeah. I checked it off. And- At that point, were you like, um, maybe I'll slip like a piece into this lady's home journal? Uh, after I finished fact-checking this burning vulva piece? or I did not feel a very strong urge to write for LHJ. It was all like really pretty basic service journalism that, and it would have been great to get paid, but the checking didn't leave that much time. And then I was still in school, so it was like classes at night, Ladies Home Journal during the day, and then I was trying to write a novel, so I would always go home and try to write my novel. What was, what was the novel all about? It was an amazing novel that one day, well, I don't know. <laughs> like I we're, 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 we want to publish a compendium of like, um, like pro- people who are professional nonfiction uh, writers now is college, college fiction. Thank that, you. It's, it's every, it's, it's all out there. It needs to be. No one, no one will ever show it. Like no, everyone tells me that, but I never get to see any of this failed. I'm going to send fiction. it to you yeah. immediately. Excellent. Yeah. Excellent. So, so at that point, like what was, what was the first thing you put out that was like, by Sean Wellesley, like, your own writing? Well, I had worked in San Francisco briefly for, I mean, I'd actually, like, my first magazine job was when I was 12. I was a messenger for a fashion magazine in San Francisco called Scene Magazine, and that was possibly my favorite job ever because I really liked just walking around the city or skating around the city um, and just delivering stuff. It was awesome, and I would go and get sandwiches for the writers, and that was... That was my introduction to magazines, and I got I got on the masthead, which was really satisfying. And then I published something in uh, like a neighborhood thing, which oddly enough, Dave Eggers worked for as well, right around the same time. He was a cartoonist, and I was a reporter. It was called North Beach Now, and it was just a you know North Beach, obviously famous beatnik area and it's still we used to go when i was in uh when i was in high school we would go into san francisco and we go to the uh the steps of rome which yeah. is right by there well and we'd order one bottle of wine with like seven men each drinking right. like a half glass yeah, of wine of just sit, sitting there 
hoping that women would walk by our table. Steps of Rome on Columbus. Yeah. I wrote a, a piece about Steps of Rome and all the other cafes. I think that's my answer, actually. That was like, for the North Beach My first news. piece oh, that North had, Beach like, now? my byline was for North Beach Now. Although, I know I'd written something for the Examiner, the San Francisco Examiner, when I was, like, 14 that they published. Weirdly, I guess I had, like, a pretty good, pretty good luck, like, getting stuff published. But... That piece, I remember going back years later, and it was still, you know, Cafe Tosca. Mm-hmm. They still had it up in their window. Oh, nice. <laughs> you know, Very like nice. 10 years yeah. later or more. And people would write me and be like, oh, I read your piece about it. <laughs> I'd be like, really? Um, so, I mean, were you in the orbit of, like, Dave, like the early McSweeney's no. Dave Egger stuff? No, no, not at all. Just no overlap whatsoever. Like, we were... I, I think we actually lived in San Francisco at the same time. Yeah. But I never knew him. We didn't meet until until New York. Hey, quick word from our sponsor, GoDaddy. Uh, GoDaddy is releasing hundreds of new domains that tell people who you are and what you do. They've got .guru, .club, .photography, and .expert. There's options for just about everything, and you're going to get the best chance of getting the perfect name for you by registering it right now, not later. Um, Get on there before someone steals it away from you. You're going to go to GoDaddy.com and enter promo code FORM30. You're going to save 30% on your order. That's 30% 30% for long-form listeners, plus you're going to help support this show. Um, there's some limitations. Go on the website for details. Thank you again, GoDaddy, for sponsoring this show. Here I am back with Sean Wilsey. The first piece in, in the, the new collection you have out, which is called More Curious, for those yeah. interested, um, is a piece on Marfa that I think is in one of the very earliest. It was in McSweeney's two. McSweeney's two. So what what year is that? That's I wrote it in ninety eight. Ninety eight, and it actually I it came out at the very beginning in ninety nine. Ninety nine. So I mean, how how did you how did you place a piece in McSweeney's uh, in nineteen ninety nine? Dave and I had a friend in common. Ellen Umansky, who is a good writer, and she had been involved in Might and moved to New York. And Ellen, I was working at the New Yorker in the fiction department. Ellen was at Columbia in the writing program and was an intern. And she was like, you got to meet this guy. Because she knew I just like read stuff and was interested in sort of everything. She's, she was like, you got to meet. And I'd read Might. Um, so she was like, you got to meet Dave. He's he's here. He's working for Esquire now. And he started this new magazine. So we ended up meeting at a bar and I picked up McSweeney's one and was just like, I guess I can curse, right? In yeah, this context. You, whatever you want. Like fucking amazed by it. Because prior to that, the literary magazine situation had just been so twee. And it was so funny and so weird and so just right. You just felt like you were reading something that needed to exist and that I was just stoked on. And so I I sent him, I'd written up this thing about Marfa as a talk of the town piece. My wife was a reporter. She had gotten sent to Marfa to cover this symposium on architecture and art. And this was in 98. And for whatever, I think it was called the Architects Journal, the magazine she was writing for. And I just tagged along and I found the whole place intriguing and the whole event intriguing. And so I wrote it up as a talk of the town piece. Talk of the town set it up in type, which was really exciting, and then killed it. But I had never really imagined myself 
writing long form journalism. I thought I was going to become a novelist. And I felt then, though, that I'd written this thing and that I cared about it. And I sent it to Dave. And because McSweeney's was all about publishing things that had been orphaned by other magazines. And he was like, just make it longer. So I went back to it and made it longer. And the, the talk of the town piece, which was like a thousand words, which was already long, turned into this over 10,000 word long piece about Marfa. Then I have a question about that, which is uh, it's sort of a general question. I'm, I'm curious about your work as a whole. It's, yeah. So when you make that jump from an, a thousand word to a 10,000 word piece, some of the stuff that starts uh, creeping in yeah. is like encounters at a gas station, like really very sort of specific sure. things that have happened. I mean, you really sort of open up the floodgate. So like, <laughs> what kind of notes are you taking on a, on a trip like that that you don't even know you're going to turn in a piece that you have enough material for a 10,000 word piece? Well, there were always memorable anecdotes in Marfa and Daphne, my wife, was always around for them. So between the two of us, it was usually pretty easy to, to or, or a lot of the time you would just write stuff down and email it to people because you'd just be like, dude, look what just happened here. Yeah. So it wasn't hard to really come up with all of that stuff. I mean, I think for me, it was my first example, like the, a big section of that piece, a couple thousand words, is about this siege that took place between these Texas separatists right. and the state of Texas itself. And there were, you know, shots were fired, people were killed. It was a big deal. Yeah, it's kind of like a mini Waco kind of situation. It was a mini Waco. Yeah. Like a comical Waco. Yeah. It was yeah. quite funny at the same Ma- time. Made Waco seem well planned. Yeah. It was an exciting, you know, it was an exciting clip job. Yeah. Um, and it was fun to figure out how to write that stuff and to weave it into my own narrative. And uh, it's fun. My mom recently read this book and she was like, Sean you're really very good at making something out of nothing. And I was, like, really flattered. Well, I was like, I, thanks, Mom, because a lot of that's what a lot of journalism is, you know? And, um, and I would agree with that assessment, and I'm curious, like, when you construct something like that, yeah. um, and, like, if you read through your collection, you, I think that there is an evolution of how you treat that sort of, yeah. like, tacking things on and, sure. and adding elements like that. It has like uh, the closest corollary I can think is a, you know, a bit like in poetry where one stanza can be sort of set, you know, describing a historical event and then the next one sort of in the present and you can sort of jump, jump. fluidly. I like to do that. And my question is, how do you know whether something fits or doesn't fit? So when you write that separatist thing and your editor goes, Hey, uh, Hey Sean, uh, you know, what was up with that whole like a uh, 2000 word aside about um, about well, the separatists? How do you defend that? It's a really good question. It, it, can't, it can't be an aside. Yeah. It has to feel like it fits into the organic material of what you're trying to say in the piece as a whole. And so once you know that what you're trying to say, then mm-hmm. you can decide, oh, does this thing fit in? Does this kind of bolster my argument? Does it add to the portrait? Your collection um, is bookended with two pieces on on Marfa. Right. The first one written as sort of a, a travelogue of a of a um, an anecdote based travelogue of yeah. someone visiting for the first time, and the second piece is some years later when you've spent time living in Marfa and, right. and you're writing it sort of from the perspective of a um, a resident of of a kind. When you when you said I'm going to set put out to do these pieces. What were you trying to capture about Marfa? What what was the nature of, of how you wanted to write about it? Well, I think it's just an emblematic place. It represents freedom in this very American way where you can go there and in some ways just do whatever you want. 
Uh, it's very inexpensive there. There's so much nature and beauty there. It's so remote mm-hmm. that it's just not going to get ruined very easily. I mean, it's like the old West. You know, this idea of the frontier is still very alive in Marfa. And yet it also is really sophisticated. There's a lot of really high art there. There's a lot of, it's like an edgy, almost adult Sesame Street yet set in the in the Wild West type of situation where you're, it's very neighborly, it's very warm in some ways, yet flinty and odd, and it has a lot of the tension of New York to it. Um, but Marfa, although of course like, I am like try, I'm positioning myself as like the bard of Marfa or something, and I know there's so many people yeah, in yeah. Marfa who are like pissed Fuck off that at you. Guy. Yeah, like, well, yeah. I think that's sort of part of my part of what what, what I find curious about it is like, you know, there's everything on the spectrum from yeah, uh, you know, a, a travel piece that's like come to Marfa, you can stay in a teepee, and like they've got all this great vi- this great vintage hotel, and then there's like a more sort of art based, you know, this yeah. is thing like that. And 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 what you seem to be doing is sort of playing with the styles of all of those kinds of pieces. Right. But towards a different end potentially. I don't know what my end really is other than <laughs> that I'm actually curious about the place. Like it, right. I do it is sort of endlessly interesting. Yeah. To me. And I guess everywhere is, but that place happens to be where I've wound up. You you've you've worked pretty steadily for the last 15 or 20 years, but you're not like a guy who does like a Hollywood profile or um, you don't have like a sort of a set formula for the kind of pieces you do. So I'm interested, like yeah. the NASA piece that you did in in in, uh, in the collection. Yeah. As I understand it, I may be mistaken about that, that came to you sort of as a commission, like, hey, you should go write about NASA. Totally. There's 8 million different ways you could you could yeah. approach writing about NASA. Like what what kicks you down a certain lane of this is how I'm going to tell the story of of NASA today. It seemed like NASA was about to have this big redux where they were about to just get fully funded and develop a whole new system of getting into orbit and then proceeding to the moon building a base, having a permanent base on the moon, and then just, like, going to Mars. And everybody at NASA was... I literally almost said everybody at Marfa, everybody at NASA was stoked about it. And there was tons of excitement and energy, and yet they were also clearly fearful that it was all going to fall apart, which it did. And so they were really open. They were really willing to talk about it. People aren't necessarily that interested in NASA post-shuttle or even post... Apollo, you know, success. Like somehow it was like everybody, like our national attention just dropped away from NASA with occasional spikes here and there. Right. But I guess the thing that hooked me into it as well is that I'd never been in such a pure environment. Everybody, it just felt like the best of our country. All these brilliant people, totally secular. Uh, although there were some people who were, <laughs> there was one guy who was just talking about God all the time. <laughs> <laughs> just how God wants, this is God's mandate. <laughs> and he was one of the dudes in Alabama, of course. <laughs> but it's also spread all over the country. Yeah. I mean, not that many people know how NASA works. It is, they've got all these space centers that are devoted to different aspects of either study or exploration or manned space flight. And they're peppered all over the country in order to spread the money around. Uh, so different communities benefit from getting jobs that are coming out of NASA, although the amount of money in the budget for NASA now is just minuscule compared to what it used to be. It used to have really 
I want to say uh, this is in the piece. And I, I can't remember specifically, but something unbelievable, like five percent of the federal budget used to go to NASA. Anyway, there are all these kind of pure souls in there who are really educated, really brilliant and aren't doing it for any other reason that they're passionate about. it. It's fun to be around people like that. And they're not celebrities so you can actually have access to them and talk to them as much as you want which is really fun there's not a lot of ego to negotiate and deal with i mean the different kinds of writing that we were talking about like the profile writing seems like such a mind i mean i did one profile and it was great but i think like the celebrity profile would be really i mean it's it would be an interesting challenge but this was just an opportunity to write whatever story i wanted to write and and it was really fun. And they let me, like, drive stuff around. You know, I got to go on the zero-gravity flight. I got to drive the new lunar rover. I, it ended up being kind of a eulogy in the end because none of that stuff ended up happening. And they just got kneecapped by the budget. Right. There, I mean, there were just so many rabbit holes that you could go down in the course of writing a piece. But I spent, a, you know, it took over my life for, for like, at least half a year. I mean, is that is that, like, feasible? Like... Do you earn it like a living off of these pieces? She, she you, paid really well, so you actually could afford to spend six months on a piece like that. Well, my That's, I was, whole my, time I was my financial it. plans are not entirely based on doing stuff like that. <laughs> like, <laughs> I have some other contingencies yeah. in effect, you know. Yeah. Like that's not the way to like necessarily right. feel super comfortable with a couple of kids and everything else. But they paid really well, and they paid a great travel budget, and. Thanks, Jim Nelson. It was he was really he was really amazing. And Mark Kirby was my editor, and he couldn't have been better. He's he now edits for Howler, the soccer magazine. Yeah, and I loved it. It was a great experience. And they, I mean, they're like flush. That's what magazines should do. They should pay people really well to go out and write stuff like that. Or I was lucky that I got to do it. I was like when I was reading it, it was like watching like a like a movie with like a lot of special effects in it. I was like, oh <laughs> no. Well, Sean, you know, they hired Robert Polidori to take the pictures yeah. and. Uh, every everywhere that I would go, well, this is an actual quote from a guy in uh, in Mississippi at the Stennis Space Center. He he introduced me to a bunch of rocket engineers. He was like, "This is Sean. He's the writer, but wait till you meet the photographer. He's really famous." <laughs> <laughs> so having done you know having done these pieces for the last ten or fifteen years, when you went when you look back on them to do yeah. this collection, like uh, what is it like reading your old shit? Well, I really rewrote a lot of it. Oh, I didn't realize that. It was kind of painful. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I feel like maybe we should have made a bigger point of that because- You know, I had like a vague feeling of that because I I had read some of the pieces before and I was reading the book and I was like, wow, this stuff's all like kind of holds together very cohesively. Well, I worked really hard to make it hold together cohesively because I just felt like who needs a book of magazine pieces? I like books of magazine pieces, but I I felt like they had to be demagazinified because they still had this kind of- topicality that was the wrong kind of topicality when I sort of grabbed the final version and looked at it that had been published wherever it had been published. And it was a tough road to walk because I didn't want to just put in all the shit that I loved that they had cut because I knew that they had cut it for a good reason. Yeah, I mean, that's like a fine line. When it's you start a going, super fine line. When you start really going hard. back to your version, you're Don't kind of go like back to your version because it's just your long, messy, undoing. fucked up draft. Did you look at, like, when you started yeah. the process of demagazinification, yeah. did you look back at your draft before? And w- was that fair game? Like, was reverting a fair game or did you have to I couldn't revert in any case, no. I had to take certain things that I was like, all right, well, that was interesting. 
But now you're going to have to make that work and put that in. And I had to undo like one thing I remember, like one of the pieces about skateboarding, and it was actually published in a couple of different places. And I melded the two versions. One of them was in Play, which was like the New York Times sports magazine for a little while. And yeah. the other one was in the LRB, the London Review of Books. And the the version that was in Play, I remember being so pissed, but I was just like, screw it. It was a good paycheck and it worked out well. Um, they had changed the fact that skaters are always hanging out at fast food restaurants, and I just cited McDonald's and Burger King, they had inserted Jamba Juice, and I was like, fuck Jamba <laughs> Juice. I don't want Jamba Juice in my book. And so that that's like one example of just something like, just tiny things, you know? I went right. back and changed little things and then added thousands of words. And then I got people to like read them again and give me their thoughts on it, and, and it was a lengthy process. So when you were like going back to like the first piece, which is about Marfa in 1998, yeah, you were adding words, like what are the what are the there rules was just some clunky about... prose in there. Okay, but you can't like show false foresight. Like ah, I bet I bet Marfa is going to become really popular with the Brooklyn set. <laughs> yeah, no, I didn't. I did not do any false <laughs> yeah. foresight. Yeah, it, well, you know that piece. I, my friend Paul Greenberg, who's a really good nonfiction writer, who mostly writes about like the ocean and ocean issues, and he's got a new book out now, um, a, called. What is it called? American Catch. Paul said, and this is just a classic magazine writer credo. He's like, you don't start making money on anything until you've published it three times. And he's right. Like, you've got to figure out a way to sell it to the first magazine, to sell it as a book, and ideally to sell some sort of second serial of it somewhere else. And in the course of that, you'll end up learning things and improving the piece. There's always somebody, the more eyes that get on it, the more fact-checking improvements come along. The whole Marfa piece, the, the first one in the book, had been in, as a special supplement, the Big Ben Sentinel, which is the Marfa paper. So every local person read it and responded to it and told me things. So I was able to make little fact-checking fixes. It felt like me. I wanted the book to feel like me, and I didn't want the book to feel like you were jumping from oh, this has a GQ vibe. This has got a New York Times vibe. This has got a London Review of Books. I just wanted it all to feel like the same voice. So the, a lot of it was was that. And you're now working on a memoir simultaneously about your post-glory, if at all, uh, experience. It's really a book about Italy, huh. about being an apprentice gondolier, and about I, I, wrote a, I wrote a piece, another magazine piece for Gourmet, that... There were a bunch of magazine pieces that I wrote that didn't make it into this book, too, because they just didn't feel like thematically they fit in with the rest of it. And it ended up being a book about America. But I've done I've written about other things. And so, you know, the 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 magazine piece I did for Gourmet was about the DiPaolo family who run this cheese shop in Little Italy. And they they seem like the most like red sauce Little Italy family ever. But. Once you get to know them, you realize they know more about Italy and they know more about food and culture there than practically anyone I have ever met anywhere. And so I traveled with them a lot back to Italy because they go and they know all their suppliers and they they renew those relationships constantly because it's a very handshaky world, the world of, of Italy and food and, and export. Right. Nothing is signed. Everything is, everything is just like mano a mano, like I'm going to look you in the eyes. So – that the, that family as kind of an antidote to my own family is probably going to be a pretty significant part of this book. And we've become really close. 
and they are really patient because I think they thought I was going to write a book about them quite quickly. It's <laughs> like <laughs> it's taken years, you yeah. know. And they're like, "Sean, when's the book about us coming out?" When you're when you're doing something like that, like uh, touring Italy with a family of uh, uh, Italian American uh, yeah. uh, grocers uh, or restaurateurs, yeah. Um, the way you portray yourself in, in the writing I've read is as kind of like a. Um, uh, like a like a lovable goofball in slightly a way. Sli- isn't that how I come across in it's, this very and moment? I would say it's not totally inaccurate but yeah. at the same time anytime you write about yourself you right. are you are making yourself a character like of course what like how do you sort of manage that in your writing like the 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 Sean Wilsey character that that appears in these pieces and when you're traveling with them obviously you're having some effect on how they behave in front of you and, and like, I guess who, I amplify what's your his strategy? flaws significantly more like i'm actually uh, apparently like a fairly competent person at like getting things done and making deadlines and all these things but like the we'll see that you might get in whatever the piece about nasa is the guy that eats a ton of oysters and drinks a lot of beer before getting on the vomit comet that guy is me and yet there's a there's just an awareness of yourself and how that's going to fit into what you're writing and how you could you could add I don't know, comedy or pathos through your own activities in a way that maybe you, you know, if I were with my wife and kids trying to, you know, make sure everybody got a good night's sleep and all the things that you do in your in your non-solo life, I'm going to conduct myself really differently. Uh, a different way to describe your, describe your character in a lot of these pieces is like a, a guy who's willing something bad to happen to him while traveling so he could write about it. Like, one of the pieces you're driving, like, a truck that can't go above 45 miles an hour from right. Texas to New York with a companion who desperately needs to get to Washington, D.C. for, a, like, a, a major work commission, and you've got, like, an old dog in the car, and it's like... It's sort of like a choose-your-own-adventure. It was a little things like that. that can go wrong. Are you lining yourself up to have problems? No, I think I've been like the beneficiary of coincidence yeah. quite a lot. And then I think like for me, and I feel really strongly about this, you can't cheat. You just can't. Yeah, you can do funny stuff, and you can insert yourself into a piece, and you can be a participatory journalist, but you can't fuck around or fudge like what happened and a lot of the time things happen and I'm not even really sure how to use them and you could make a counter argument that all those things were like too cute and too perfect and so you have to figure out how to like use them in a way that isn't too cute and too perfect and yet is accurate and real and I mean I just get infuriated when people take shortcuts and uh, I don't think I'm taking shortcuts in these it, you know, in that way. Do I mean, I don't even know that you're saying that. No, like, no, actually, I, yeah. my, uh, part of my question is, um, so like this guy who agrees to take this this horrific road trip with you, who's a friend of yours, are other people in on the fact that you're trying to do something I didn't really wanna... ill-advised because you can't cheat, you are actually going to do something ill-advised? No. Well, but no, in that case, I had no intention of writing about it at all. Uh, and only about halfway through the piece, there's this moment where and I, I'm going to try to quote it where I suddenly realized I'm going to have to write about this. And and it was this moment of despair because that, things stop being fun in the same way when you have to write about them. You're like, crap, now I have to pay attention. Now I have to write things down. Now I have to make sure that I'm getting this all right. And that happened when we met this lunatic, fascinating um 
character in San Antonio who took us on this wild tour of San Antonio and who just seemed so improbable as a person and who was the biggest name dropper I've ever encountered and was talking about all these people he knew, but it all checked out. It was all true. And I knew, I was like, wow, this guy has an opportunity to write something here. Fuck. Um, my fun trip is over. But like, it didn't begin that way. I didn't expect to be writing about it. It was really like a lot of people had died in my life. I was. It was a pretty hard time. And I wanted to get this truck back to New York. And I wanted to get closer with my friend Michael. And it was like this kind of, I don't know, I feel like the midlife crisis, I'm not quite sure how long it lasts and when it starts, but it felt a little bit like that was a definite midlife crisis kind of moment where I felt like, oh man, all that kind of promise of your 20s, I was in my early 30s, where you're like, anything could happen and and I could sort of live anywhere or be anybody or, or friendships are going to last forever. I just felt a lot of that stuff kind of slipping away in the obligations of adulthood. And, and it, that trip was really conceived as an opportunity to just kind of step out of life for a little while and then it ended up just being something that I had to write about. And when you're off, you know, when you're doing this truck, like, is anyone calling you back to reality in these sort of in a, situations? Like, is your wife saying, hey, Sean, you know, it seems very dangerous the way that you're driving this defunct truck and we have kids, like, I prefer... You're not, like, a war journalist, but you are sort of putting yourself out in the line well, of Well, I've definitely had bad happen. things happen to me. Um, that aren't in this book that are that are kind of part of this memoir that I'm working on now. Like the real like ultimate midlife crisis thing that I got involved with was when I was 40. And this was in the New Yorker last year. And as part of this memoir, I went back to Venice where I had been an apprentice gondolier and I rode a boat slightly smaller than a gondola, but still like, you know, 25, 27 foot long wooden rowboat. And you stand up to row it all around the lagoon of Venice and I camped out on all these abandoned islands in the lagoon and it's dangerous there are you know drug runners and criminals and rats and ghosts if you believe the hype and all sorts of things that could happen to you out there alone in essentially an urban area uh, that just happens to be an aquatic urban area and Daphne she was like, A, are you sure you could actually do this? And B, um, should you maybe bring some kind of weapon along? And C, you definitely need to get a tetanus shot. And I wasn't quite sure that I could do it and nearly failed. Uh, I didn't bring the weapon because it's just always a bad idea. And then I got impaled at one point on like an ancient iron fence and <laughs> had to get like sewn up. And I mean, it was really kind of gnarly. And And I was just like, why am I doing this? And of course it was about... Some sort of, I mean, people, men certainly grow more and more extreme in some ways as we get older. And I, I mean, I don't know how many people who, you know, in their 20s were content to just sort of drink a beer and do whatever, who are now just taking massive bicycle trips through Africa or all that kind of, you know, I don't know exactly what you're trying to prove to yourself um, but it's something. And so, and, and that's definitely what that was for me. And it did result in some serious bodily harm. And, the, you know, the responsibility involved in kind of having a family is an ongoing question. But like, I don't know, think of like Bill Finnegan, who's whatever, maybe the best nonfiction writer out there. Certainly he's on my list. Come on the podcast, Mr. Yeah, Finnegan. seriously. Yeah. And he's like a crazy big wave surfer. Yeah. You know, and has probably had more close to death experiences than, than you know, a lot of war correspondents. And of course he does go to wars <laughs> as well. Do you think like uh, all this time, like 
I remember when I like read your your first book, uh, Glory of It All, and I don't know exactly what sort of led you to have the emotions that then put you in a place where you did, wanted to be, did not really want to be, but ended up in these schools, which are in many ways sort of about modifying your sure. emotional process and yeah. how you process the world. And you've now been, uh, in, in in your writing, sort of been analyzing that about yourself now for, you know, 20 or, 20 or so odd years. Is is it is it therapeutic? I mean, does it, do you feel like your writing ha- has changed your, the way that you perceive the world? I probably look at writing from a professional standpoint more than as an opportunity for personal growth. I'm obsessed with writing a good sentence and organizing thoughts in a way that is really as beautiful or elegant as possible. And so by the time I take really like raw material and try to work it into something that you could read, I've usually like worked on that material in some other way in order to be able to deal with it on the page. Uh, So I guess the answer is that writing isn't necessarily a cathartic process, but at the end, it is the final stage maybe of a cathartic process. But it's not like it feels like I'm working out these things in writing. It feels like the writing is the conclusion of the having worked out the stuff. Does that necessitate then that you need a certain amount of sort of time yeah. removed from like, how, do you have like a clock like, okay, time to start working on the early 30s? It's now. like a 20 year clock. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe it's maybe it's like 10 to 15 years. It's funny. I was talking to, um, I did one of those uh, Atlantic interviews about a quote from literature that you really love. And the quote that I really love is from Casanova. And he says, I'm writing my life to laugh at myself and I am succeeding. And I feel like I, it, it has to get funny to me before I feel like I've dealt with it. And I think the raw recent stuff is rarely funny and it's really painful. And I usually like to write about other people and this book is largely about other people. But yet I realize that I've had this kind of eventful, strange life that is suited to memoir and for whatever reason I seem capable of writing about it as memoir but the clock definitely has to tick long enough for me to get away from it and to be able to laugh at it when you look back and you've had that um you know your uh 10 to 15 year waiting period um where you're allowed to look at your own life and then you and then you put something down and it's sort of locked locked in stone then because you've written about it I mean do you ever think about like your kids let's say when they're teenagers reading about yeah. Teenage you as written by a 30-ish you and how they'll think about you. I think it's going to be a difficult experience for them. I mean, my kids and I talk about pretty much everything that they want to talk about. It's not like I'm like urging them to talk about difficult stuff. And all you really want to do is protect your kids. And for me, realizing that they're going to be exposed to things that their beloved grandmother did and said and to just I don't think that my kids necessarily venerate me as an all-knowing paternal figure so I don't think it's going to come as a great surprise to them that I had some kind of wild checkered confused adolescence but but yeah uh, I don't know that it's possible for me to destroy every copy of that book before (laughs) What I was going to say, it. the internet's really going to like catch you. Although you do have the possibility that they're just going to not give a shit, which I can see. Like I could see just being like, oh, that book about my dad. I don't know. It seems kind of long. 
I never read the books that my mom wrote when I was a kid. What were what were the books your mom wrote about? Oh, she wrote a bunch. Um, she was like quite a successful um, kind of fashion lifestyle writer. She wrote a book about giving parties. It was called How to Be a Party Girl. Uh, she wrote a book about kind of a San Francisco-based memoir about living on uh, the crooked block of Lombard in a in a house that was inhabited by poltergeists. <laughs> it was kind of like a pot boiler. And I don't know, I just never wanted to read them yeah. particularly. Do you think your kids have the experience of like, so you grew up in sort of a, a San Francisco society uh, milieu. Do you think your kids have the um, the idea that they're growing up with like a wild itinerant writer father or are they just... All kids really want is to feel loved and noticed and taken and acknowledged. And I think like I do that. And other than that, I don't really think that they have a great deal of awareness or even interest in conceiving of their parent in those terms. Not at least, at least not yet. You know, maybe, maybe when they're teenagers, I don't know. I mean, there's like gradations of self-awareness, certainly in the New York child that can get pretty extreme. Yes. And we've really tried to like shelter our kids from that level of self-consciousness. Cause I think it's like, Jesus, man, where do you go from there? When you when you start going, I mean, you talked about like when you're putting together the Marfa Peefs, you go look at talk to the local newspaper reporters. You go sort of people. You you lean on people to help you assemble what you need. Who who do you when you're going to write a memoir? Who do you who do you lean on? Definitely people in my family. Um, I mean, there are helpful people in the family, and there are unhelpful people in the family. But like, it's they. It's kind of their story too. So people that I feel like will be helpful, I always want to talk to them. Yeah. And then there's just a ton of Italy centric research that is, you know, like I worked as a waiter for a couple of restaurants and and uh, and they were really very, I don't know, you ever read Down and Out in Paris and London? Yeah. Yeah. It's one of my favorite books. And the level of plonger. Yeah, man. Well, the level of squalor and just angst. And, and tension in the restaurants that I worked in was really like on that level. And I really would love to write a relatively up-to-date version of that. And then it's like, but you got to think about Bourdain and like, and how, what he did and how to deal with all that stuff. And then there's a lot of the people that I worked with were immigrants and whether or not I can find them now and talk to them about it. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that you can just go down that rabbit hole forever. And at a certain point you're like, all right, man, like is this research evasion or is it adding depth to the story like a lot of what i did today was working on the restaurant stuff and it happened to be going on i was working there during the gulf war or during desert shield the lead up to the gulf war and one of my co-workers was an egyptian and they were always pitting us against each other to see which one of us was ultimately just going to snap on the other one and it wasn't going to be me like but the and the egyptian and i were actually really good friends <laughs> and liked each other a lot so we would stage these encounters to just fuck with the Italians and and it's fun to recreate the political environment that was going on in Italy at that time there were tons of protests going on Americans were supposedly targeted for terrorist attacks in in Florence which is where I was working at the time my mother was really panicked she wanted to get me out of there how do you how do you like go about finding a guy you worked at an Italian restaurant with in the 90s the restaurant's still there yeah so that's a start uh the the people a lot of people go into to the restaurant business as a career in Italy, so it's not that hard to find some of them. Mm-hmm. And Pipo, 
was a really good he was a really good sous chef. So I have no doubt that that like he continued doing what he did. He wanted to he wanted to move back to Egypt though. He had this plan that he was saving up to buy all these mechanical scarecrows. <laughs> And he's gonna take them back to Egypt. And just I guess there were a lot of there's a lot of crows along the Nile that, that just had not met you know Western scarecrow technology. And so I don't know if he went back. I, I really don't know. And it's to me that's not crucial. There are other people that I desperately want to find. Um, one of the characters in the in the book is my sister, um, who didn't come up at all in the first book. She's my half sister. She's 20 years older than I am. She took a trip to Italy with our dad in 68 where she went over on a, a the Italian lines they didn't fly they took a they took a boat the Italian lines flagship the Michelangelo and my dad apparently had this like shipboard romance with a French countess and I want to find that fucking countess you know <laughs> and it's proving really difficult there's no um manifest of who was on that not that I've been able to find like Certainly, the Italians don't seem to have anything. The port of, uh, you know, the Port Authority of New York doesn't have anything about about departures. They've just got arrivals. I don't know if I'm going to be able to find her, but I really, really want to um, because she's going to have a whole other take on it. When I read through uh, the collection, more curious, it has a real arc to it, even though they're individual pieces. And now, now, I, now, I, now, it, now I know. Now I know that you. Uh, <laughs> yeah, since I worked on it, based it that over the top like a barbecue <laughs> yeah, sauce. Right. But when you're working fresh, like in the case of this book, yeah, do you know sort of uh, thematically? Do you know kind of the arc that you're going for and you're kind of like trying to assemble it or are you discovering this stuff in real time and seeing what you've got at the end as you go and find countesses? And Ideally, I I like to have some, and I feel like it's kind of a challenge on this book right now because I don't have it yet, something that you're like, that's the end. And once you've got that, then you're just like writing to it. Mm -hmm. And it's like you see it there. But otherwise, there's this strange feeling of just being at sea with your material and you're like well this is good but where's this going to go so I'm I, I'm still trying to get to that end thing although it's funny actually now, as I say that I'm like oh Sean you kind of do have the end so you don't know whether this um, uh, countess is going to be something that doesn't even make it or could be the supply of the central theme something that she says or reveals sure yeah do you have you picked up like detective skills over the years in trying to do this kind of stuff I mean does it require advanced yeah, you googling know, and that kind of thing I'm not a very I'm not like the world's greatest googler I think that usually uh, I like to try try and follow like a trail of people you just start if you find somebody who was on that ship and you just ask them like a million questions about it and I love to re-interview people as many times as they'll let me until you get some final detail that they'd forgotten about and then you're like oh okay I can take that and like talk to somebody else about that and it just goes on pretty much indefinitely. A lot of the time you'll read some old piece of journalism and you're like, wow, why didn't they follow that? There's just something in there. And probably because they were on a deadline and they had to get it they had to get it done the same day they were running it. But there's just so many clues out there to potentially hook into and try to, you know, find more stuff through. That seems like as good a place to stop as any. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, the book is More Curious. Uh, it's out from McSweeney's. Uh, we'll link to it in the show notes. And Are any of those pieces online, or have they all been pulled down in advance of the book? 
I think they're. I think that some of them are definitely online. Well, don't read the online ones because they don't have that they're special not the, barbecue they're not, They don't have that them. sauce. Thank you, Sean Wilsey. We'll be back next week. And that was the Long Form Podcast. Uh, I'm Aaron Lammer. Uh, thanks very much to my guest, Sean Wilsey. Thanks to my co-hosts, Evan Ratliff and Max Linsky. Our unstoppable editor, Jenna Weiss-Berman. Our equally unstoppable intern, Timothy Maddox. Um, thanks to our sponsor this week, GoDaddy. Remember again, you can go to GoDaddy.com and use the promo code FORUM30 get 30% off and support this show. And of course, thanks to our longtime uh, never going to stop loving you sponsor tiny letter it's a email newsletter service from the good people at MailChimp thanks to them thanks to all the listeners we'll be back next week yeah.